Welcome to Mindset Sagas. John here, Episode 3, The Divine Games. Today we're going to talk about the Olympics. What role did they play in both the ancient world and now in the modern era? Today we'll have an interview with Kant Koga, who is the lead member of the IOPC the Ichihara Olympic Preparation Committee in Ichihara, Japan, and he is very involved in raising Olympic awareness to the Japanese people. The subject is massive in scope, so we're just going to touch on the basics before discussing the upcoming Tokyo Olympics in 2020 with our guest. To begin with, let me share a tale that started me wondering about how ingrained our need to observe sport may go. Many years ago, I used to have an indoor cat. Now and then he would slip out of the door like Steve McQueen on a motorcycle and bolt off into the raccoon-laden environment. He knew well from experience that I would have to fetch him back. He never ran away, per se, but he would move out to about 70 feet away from where I was. And as it took me time to get to him, he would just sit back for a few moments and casually clean his ears with his paws until I was just close enough that he knew it was time to repeat that 70-foot distance cycle all over again. You could see that he was spending more time enjoying just watching my fruitless effort to catch him than making any real exertions on his own part. When he tired of this game, he'd just walk back into the house of his own accord. Now, he knew I couldn't catch him, so I fully believe that he just wanted to watch me try. You get to know a pet's mind after a time, and they get to know yours. And it got me thinking. Do you even need to be a member of the human species to enjoy watching the physical exertion in others? Well, let's talk about Homo sapiens, as I assume that's the bulk of my listening audience. In terms of athletic competition, humans have ratcheted up the competition scale all the way from simple foot races up a forested hill, or in mano a mano and armed struggles into far larger cultural events. Events that were often steeped in either spiritualism or as an outlet for public diversion. This is a trend found across a number of ancient cultures. On the spiritual front, consider that in the Americas, there was the Mesoamerican ball game, which was a matter of life or death for players of the game, as the game had deep spiritual and sacrificial meaning to those cultures, and it revolved around bouncing a rubber ball through a vertical hoop. The general consensus seems to be that they have been playing that game since about 1400 BCE. Then, on the other side of the world, the Etruscans had funerary games, which would be the precursors for Roman gladiatorial combat. Again, in their minds, this was bloodshed for the gods to witness in a meaningful way to their cultures. There were other games held across the Hellenic world, but the Olympics was, as it is today, the big show. It took place at the foot of Mount Olympus, which was the supposed residence of their gods. To the Greeks, too, the Olympics were spiritual in nature, but their sacrifices seemed to have been limited to Ox and to Zeus. The ancient Greeks, ever pragmatic, ever logical, used their games to do more than merely entertain gods or men. These athletic festivities were so important that all hostilities would cease in what was called the Olympic Truce. You have to understand that in ancient battle, it was not an uncommon agreement between armies that a powerful warrior from either side would have an individual battle beforehand to help decide the fate of the battle for all, at least as far as morale was concerned. Homer's writings of the Trojan War are replete with such tales. The next step was taking this to an athletic level. A logical step where none needed to die, and one could achieve a lifetime of glory for his city of birth. The Olympic truce lasted three months and was a factor that may have allowed some measure of reprieve from intercity state strife. We are talking about the Olympics here, but let's acknowledge that the Greeks did spend a lot of time wondering how things worked in the universe. 
Pythagoras himself was a good friend of a major champion of the games called Milo of Croton, who we will be discussing in just a bit. So imagine all these great thinkers, philosophers, and athletes having discussions on striving to attain perfection. In those discussions, one might well muse how fast the fastest man can run, how much can the strongest man carry, and so on. Greek sculpture bears this out too, as it's more idyllic than Roman realism. The Greeks saw themselves as they wanted to be, and the Olympics were part of that narcissistic idealism. Just as with all civilizations, pride played a part as well. Take the specimen I spoke of just a moment ago by the name of Milo of Croton. Put aside your notions of Olympic champions of today for just a moment and imagine this. For this character Milo sounds like a legend that stepped off a boat in ancient Troy. Here's Milo's resume. By the time of the Olympic Games in 516 BCE, Milo of Croton, strong man, who was an associate of Pythagoras, by the way, was a six-time wrestling winner of the Olympic Games. He had seven crowns at the Pythian Games, ten at the Isthmian Games, and nine at the Nemean Games. Legend has it, according to Pliny the Elder, that he ate 20 pounds of bread, 20 pounds of meat, and 18 pints of wine a day. Facing this man must have been akin to facing a bear. A legend passed down to us also states that he used to carry a bull calf on his back every day as he grew up year by year until he was literally carrying a bull on his back as a man. So, there is a draw to star power. That's true of any sport. Romans took that aspect even further, selling the sweat of legendary heroes of the arena as love potions. Different times, to say the least. So the Romans were the inheritors of Greek civilization. Did Roman culture affect the Greeks? Yeah, certainly. It mostly went in one direction, as the Romans couldn't get enough Greek philosophy, science, spiritualism, etc., as fast as they could. The Romans took the best ideas from those they encountered, but with the Greeks, there was an endless buffet. They even took the idea of having gymnasiums about the city. Where the Romans did differ in their outlook to athletics was that to the Roman observing athletes was all about the spectacle. The Romans may have initially inherited the Etruscan gladiatorial games from its intended spiritual mortuary origins, but it grew to become more of a massive industry of carnage and misery, increasing in scope and complexity to satisfy the masses of poor and unemployed Romans who could potentially riot. The Romans believed that in order to keep civic order, one must give the Roman mob their panamet circenses, or as we say, bread and circuses. Any diehard fan of the story of Spartacus's rebellion will recall that the training area of a gladiator was called a ludus, which comes from the Latin word ludere, which means to play, mock, or tease. This is fitting for the Romans, who seem to be more interested in pure spectacle and an unhealthy delight in cruelty. Now, I fully admit to admiring the Romans, but let's be honest about this point. Life in antiquity was bloody, and they saw no harm in bringing that into a huge fancy pit in the middle of the city, and show the plebs just how rough life was beyond the frontiers, and just how lucky they were to be Romans. While the Greeks did invent a violent unarmed sport called Pancration, Greeks were comparatively more interested in which city had pleased the gods by its many medals, or which city had produced more heroes and prestige from victory at the games. Now, the Romans did continue the games for a time, but as Rome became more Christianized, there was a backlash against pagan traditions, and eventually the Olympics and the arena were shuttered seemingly forever. So why are the games back with us again? Well, the Renaissance started a fire to learn again and began to make what the ancients achieved look pretty impressive, and less off-limits. 
and more so with every passing year, until one day a man by the name of Baron Pierre de Coubertin founded the International Olympic Committee, or the IOC, back in 1894. And we entered the new modern era of the Olympic Games, which in addition to the Summer Games added Winter and Paralympic Games at later dates. These new games draw on the allure of antiquity, but they are deeply different, doing away with the traditional nudity which the ancient athletes competed in. Also, women would come to be officially accepted to compete over the ensuing years. In ancient times, there seemed to have been anomalous exceptions, but generally, women didn't play a big role in the Olympics. In ancient times, they were forbidden from attending them, for the most part. One of the big decisions, of course, was to allow the games to be held in other cities with compatible infrastructure and those that had enough funds to ensure success. The official Olympic dream is to build bonds, but it has been used politically, notably between the Soviet Union and United States during the Cold War, where one-upmanship was inclusive to every type of thing they can compete for. Propaganda often plays a key role. A good example would be Germany in 1936, just before World War II. Just as a side note, those were the games where for the first time the torch was carried from Greece to the host city. Some may argue that cities today have much to gain by hosting the Games. Proponents argue that these events create infrastructure projects, increase trade, promote cultural exchange and tourism. Critics, on the other hand, point out that there are extensive costs incurred for all the necessities of these events. Also, they might argue that the cost of affordable housing may rise in the host city. Regardless of one's leanings, there is no doubt that the cost-reward benefit is always a big factor when trying to bid for one city to have an Olympic Games. In the spirit of full disclosure, I have lived in two cities during the Games, summer in Montreal in 1976 and winter in Vancouver in 2010. Rio's Olympics are eagerly anticipated by many in 2016, but my guest is already looking forward to 2020. So with that in mind, let me bring on my guest, Kant Koga, to discuss the Tokyo Olympics of 2020. With our guest from Japan, there is an opportunity to get a window into the mindsets regarding the Olympic Games over there. No, we are not going to pour over minute logistics, which will certainly be available on brochures and on the internet, especially after Rio. Hello, Kant. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Hi, John. Yeah, it's good to have you here. Uh, it's good to be here. Overall, I'd like to hear your thoughts in two different areas. First, to hear your insights into how people perceive the Olympics in Japan. Okay. And later on, I'd like to get your thoughts about why people like sports as we do. Right. So yeah. let's jump right into it, shall we? Mm. Putting aside your role a moment, which sport are you personally interested in? Well, I am interested in baseball. Ah. We have our own national professional leagues. Mm -hmm. uh, some Japanese baseball players go to the United States. Baseball is one of the most popular sports in Japan, along with soccer. Uh, we have our own national professional leagues. Uh, some Japanese baseball players go to the United States and play in the Major League Baseball, such as Ichiro Suzuki. Um, I also like Judo. Ah, Judo. As you know, Judo is one of the Japanese national sports, mm -hmm. or I say, martial arts. Actually, when I was a junior high school student, I belonged to a Judo club. Mm. Well, by doing Judo, I learned how to deal with people in Japanese society. Really? I think that it was a good experience for me as well. Alright, so let's talk about 2020. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the IOPC? What are the goals of your organization? Okay, so our main goal is to provide sufficient knowledge about the world for local people in Ichihara before the Tokyo Olympics in 2020. So what is the focus of your group? At the time of the Olympics, we expect many foreign visitors will visit Tokyo and its surrounding areas 
Ichihara is located about 50 kilometers away from Tokyo, and it is not too far away from the location of wrestling. Actually, wrestling takes place in Chiba, and Ichihara is located in Chiba. Chiba is a prefecture next to Tokyo, so I think that many foreign visitors are expected to visit Chiba as well. And what role does the IOPC play? Since I founded the committee last year, I have opened several seminars where people learn foreign culture with a guest from another country. So from your vantage point, how has the enthusiasm been for the 2020 games in Japan? Well, we still have time actually. So not many people are actually aware of the Olympics. So, let's say like people in Ichihara. People are interested, in, definitely they are interested in the Olympics, but uh, they don't have any plan for that. So once I make a seminar, people are quite excited and uh, they, they say thank you for me because, you know, they now have a chance to prepare for the Olympics. So for example, they, they now understand how to communicate with people from different countries. And yeah, I believe that I can help people prepare their mindsets and understanding prior to the games. Um, in Japan, there are many people who are interested in the Olympics, but I don't think many Japanese are now ready for the Olympics, I think. And does that make it challenging? Okay, so in local areas, such as Ichihara, uh, we don't really see foreigners. So people don't know exactly what happens in the world. And Olympics is a global event. So once we have that, we are forced to get involved in world affairs. Well, it's not about politics, but the Olympics is a big global event. So, um, what I can do for them is to make them aware of some problems and something that we must know about the world. So, I think this is very important for Japanese and also the world as well. So when foreigners come to Japan, they will also understand what Japanese people do. So that's why I actually teach English and also ch teach Chinese to some people in local places. So what challenge stands out to you? One of the biggest challenges for Japanese people is language. We don't really speak English, even mm -hmm. though we have lots of education on English. Um, every Japanese has to study English as a foreign language, but uh, we don't really speak well because some of the education is not practical for using English. Um, well, I'm not going to talk about education here, but uh, what I need to mention is that uh, since we have the Olympics, we have more contact with foreigners, so I think language is important. Uh, as long as foreigners don't study Japanese, um, we, we need to speak their language. And English is one of the candidates, but English is also not enough. So that's why, as I said before, I, I open English and Chinese class. Um, many Chinese people are coming to Japan. Some of them live here. My wife is Chinese. And I noticed that it is very important for Japanese people to study languages before the Olympics. Any other challenges? Okay. Um, so Japan has aging society. There are more and more older people, and there are a fewer, fewer young people. So they don't have interact with one another. I'm, I'm relatively young, I said. And since I open seminars, I can meet many foreigners, 
as well as all the people in Japan. And the latter is quite important for me because I can also understand how they feel. And they, I, we can actually understand their knowledge about Japanese traditional culture. All the people know a lot. So my idea is that young people should support their ideas. So young people speak English. Young people know foreign culture more than old people. So young people should use their language to explain old people's ideas and also knowledge. Also, by doing that, we can create a interaction between young and old, which will facilitate more relationships between old and young in Japan. I think this is very important for the aging society in Japan. Mm-hmm. What legacy do you hope that the Olympics will leave both Japan and the global community? Well, I think that the 2020 Tokyo Olympics will change the world's view on Japan. Let's say, what is your image of Japan? I suspect that many see Japan as being advanced in the field of robotics, gadgets, and that they're also very culturally conservative. Okay, and I think that's all. You know, so Japanese people want more from the world. So Japan has many things, such as integration of foreign cultures. So we adopted Chinese characters and we still use them. So to clarify, you mean the fact that Japan has adopted many concepts from abroad? In our language, we also have lots of long words from English. We use them every day. And we try to make our life better with foreign cultures. And this is a very important point. And once Olympics takes place in Tokyo, people will see Japan and they will now understand how Japanese life is. I think that this is so important. I think that people can understand Japan better. I think that's the most important point for the Olympics legacy. Well, thanks for the Japanese perspective on the Olympics, Kant. I'm going to switch gears on you now because I also, I'm also interested in why sport has been popular throughout history. If you were listening to the beginning of the show, you may have noticed that I was talking about, I was thinking aloud, shall we say, about why people enjoy spectating sports. I'd like to get someone else's thoughts on the matter. I think that sports are kind of entertainment that will bring passion for viewers. Let's say when we watch soccer games, we can see players' passion for winning. Sometimes they fight they sometimes shout, sometimes they are excited about something, and we can all feel their passion. I think sports are like that. We have listeners in different countries, so this might be of interest. I know that you have lived abroad, um, in terms of that you've lived away from Japan. Do you feel that crowds differ in their reaction to sporting events? Well, actually, I don't really see any difference. Well, of course, I think it depends on people. Like if someone who is very enthusiastic about something, he or she is more excited about something, this kind of thing. Uh, so if I compare Japanese soccer game with, okay, so British soccer game. Um, but let's say Japanese people like to make harmony when we chirp something. So we use more, you know, musical instruments while we are chirping something. We sometimes sing a song or something like that. Uh, British sometimes sing a song while they are chanting something, but uh, they don't use musical instruments. Uh, it is quite remarkable when you watch Japanese baseball game, 
they use, you know, I mean, fans use a lot of uh, musical instruments, so um, baseball match becomes like kind of orchestra concert, which is very in- interesting and funny for foreign visitors. Well, I mean, I've I've heard like kind of bugle sounds um, at sporting events in North America before. Um. Well, when it comes to baseball, okay, so we use drums and trumpets. However, there is some issue on using the instruments in baseball games at night. As you can guess, they are noisy. So there have been some complaints from neighbors of a baseball stadium. Therefore, after 9 o'clock at night, instruments are not allowed to use. This is, I believe, a unique aspect of Japanese sport situation. What do you think of that? It sounds like this is on a different scale. <laughs> okay, Kant, I know that you're very interested in both Eastern and Western philosophy. Uh, your name, Kant, itself speaks volumes. Um, are there any famous philosophers that you know of that speak about or refer to sport? Yes, as you know my name, I love philosophy. Uh, but I have not attended any philosophy schools except my study at Oxford University in 2008. An ancient Greek philosopher, Aristotle, said, Humans are political animals. Everyone lives together in society. This idea can closely be related to a game of sports, I think. The most important feature of a game is that it is a formal confrontation between the player and his opponent, in which all activity takes place within an agreed system of rules. These rules may be highly random, but they have to be obeyed, because basically it is a rule structure which defines the game. Once the rules are clearly disobeyed, the participants know that the game is over. In the East and the West, people's understanding of rules are different. In the West, Traditionally, rules facilitate one's own right in society. However, in the East, rules are used for creating harmony. As I explained my experience of Judo, people in the East love to facilitate group-oriented mind in sports. In contrast, Westerners are inclined to enjoy sports as a fair competition and show their strengths during it. What you just said about Western drive and athletics reminded me of the characters in the Iliad, in that their search for glory is what drove them. And ambition can be either a good or a bad thing, depending on what it is. Right, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been great having you on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Bye. So, the big question I asked at the beginning of the show about why we enjoyed athletic spectacle. This is my final thought. Like I said, this is just this is me thinking out loud. But I think direct competition is one thing when there's challenges for dominance is when huge deer thrash their antlers about at each other, or when wolves fight for the role of alpha male. What I'm curious about is when did that third kind of character appear? Not the one in the contest, but the one who was off to the side. The one leaning against the tree and chuckling and applauding an amusement at the antics of others in competition. If it hasn't been done yet, I would love to see a study done on seeing how far back into the tree of life this habit goes. I don't profess to have the answer, but I find it interesting to contemplate. I hope you enjoy contemplating it too. Well, that'll do it for this show. Thank you all for listening. We hope you'll tune in again next time. Special thanks to our guest, Koga, And thanks to Milo and Pythagoras. Figure out the triangles. You can do it. 
You can visit our website at www.mindsetsagas.com or you can check out our Facebook page. Some of the sounds used on this show come to us courtesy of Sirenscape. Whether you're running a podcast or at a gaming table, you definitely want to give their work a listen. Check out their website at www.sirenscape.com.